0: Hebrews 11.14 is our text. It says here, well, I better start reading with 13 at the beginning of a sentence or paragraph. All these died in faith without receiving their promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The theme have been talking about is that, that the patriarchs, starting with Abraham, were uh, strangers and aliens, and certainly that was literally true for Abraham, because he left his homeland, and he went to Canaan, which was a place of promise, and when he got there, he never owned property other than ultimately a burial spot for his wife, and he was a stranger and alien, but the prom- but the Lord promised this entire country to him. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing is taking it even beyond that and That even Canaan itself isn't the ultimate homeland for the people of faith, but heaven is. Ultimately, the homeland is a heavenly one. Now, the word for country in the Greek is a very specific word, and it comes from our word father, or from the Greek word father, patris, and what it means is fatherland. Fatherland. Or it would be like the home, wherever it was you, would be where you grew up. If you moved here from another country, you might still consider the one you came from your fatherland, so to speak. That's what it says here in the Greek. Um, and so they were um, uh, looking for their homeland, but the homeland was heaven. And this is a, a metaphor expression and it talks about saluting one's homeland from afar. And I'm trying to remember the words of the Canadian National Anthem. I haven't watched hockey for a while because there hasn't been any. But uh, they, they have a, what is it, Old, old Canada, I stand on guard for, you, for thee. Isn't there something about saluting or not? Am I making that up? I can't remember. But it would be the idea of saluting or saying your pledge of allegiance or saying something about your love for your fatherland uh, where you came from. And this shows that the Christian hope is an eschatological hope and that, our, that we have a home in heaven. I think it, it reminds me of the passage where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you might be also. So Jesus has made a home for us. It's our true fatherland. It's where we wish we could be if we could be anywhere else. It's where we long for. um, Some days more than others. (laughs) Um, Dear Lord, please return soon so that we could be with You. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, I have a couple of cross-references. And... um, the first one is Romans eight twenty-three to twenty-five. Um, Dan, if you could look that up, Romans eight twenty-three to twenty-five. And then there's one that's a long rep. I'll have us all turn to, and then I'll read that one. But first, let's do Romans eight twenty-three to twenty-five.
1: And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to with redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? 25. 25. Yeah. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it?
0: Yeah, so we have hope for that which we don't see. And there's plenty that we don't see. We don't see our eternal reward. We don't really see Jesus other than through the eyes of faith. It says we believe in Him when we have not seen. We we don't see the heavenly Jerusalem yet. We don't see the future promises. And we don't see exactly what we'll be like, but we know that we'll be like Him. And we know that He has many promises that are yet unseen. So faith is the evidence of things not seen. And one of the things not seen, that's our theme here in Hebrews of faith, one of the unseen things is this future heavenly reward but yet it is something that we look for from afar and that we long for, eschatological hope. I, think, I can't remember last week we maybe talked about this, but I noticed when I was a new Christian in 1971, and I started going to a little, little Pentecostal church, the songs that we sang were so much about this. It was There were just dozens of different songs about heaven and longing for the Lord return. Uh, the, you know, songs about the rapture, songs about the the heavenly reward. And then I, it was interesting as, um, things progressed historically. At that time, we sort of looked upon ourselves as the little church on the wrong side of the tracks and where not too many of the nobility in town ever went. Okay. It was, it was, it was a work of God amongst ordinary type people. But what happened was in the, this, in the, 70s and 80s, the movement gained popularity, TV shows, um, big fancy um, churches, which that's fine. I can do a work amongst anybody, including rich people. Okay, But, But that's not my point. The point is, the songs changed. All of a sudden, it seemed kind of beneath us to be singing songs longing for heaven because people came out and said, well, that's a defeatist attitude. You need to, so the songs came, Dominion, you know, we're gonna rule, and so we started singing Dominion theology. I'm thinking out in the bigger world there, where I'm, the group I was in were singing scripture songs during those years, but, um, I, you know what, I'm not ashamed to sing, um, Some Glad Day When This Life Is Over, I'll Fly Away. Amen. Not not ashamed to sing that, and, uh, because we're seeking for a heavenly city. Now, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 18. And here is a a section that goes into chapter 5 that is explicit teaching about how we should view uh, ourselves now and what relationship our present faith has with future hope. And because of that, I think it's an important commentary on our passage here, Hebrews 11 and verse 14 It says this knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up I'm on I'm on wait a second 4 yeah I started at 14 didn't I All right Let's start with 16 that's the beginning of a paragraph 416 Therefore we do not lose hope heart but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Notice how similar that is to the theme in Hebrews where faith is the evidence of things not seen. And notice Paul's oxymoron.
2: unseen.
0: Right. An oxymoron, it, it, it isn't it, when used as valid literature, like Paul does here, isn't a, a logical contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction to get us to think about something greater. And what he's using is he's using look in the figurative sense and not seen in the literal sense. So the way you would look at what's not seen would be through the eyes of faith. Amen. all right? So we are looking to, in the sense of a hoping for or anticipating, not literally physically seeing. So we're looking at what's not seen. So, so that's an oxymoron, but a purposeful one. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. And um, the word there in the Greek is proskyros. And what it means is living, uh, continuing for a limited time. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And that means on into the ages. So what we can see now is temporal, it's finite, it's passing away. But what is unseen is eternal. Right? And I would say that New Testament biblical Christianity always has this perspective. And the more we lose the perspective, the more we lose focus on the Gospel and on Christ. Amen. And the more we gain focus on trying to solve problems in the here and now or turning Christianity into a religion to make the world a better place to live in. As if that's why we're here. I'm thinking about that because I just wrote about it yesterday.
2: Really what it is, the, if we don't have an eternal perspective, the Gospel itself is of no value because it offers us afflictions now. Why wouldn't he? Any sane person wouldn't. The only reason to support, put up with afflictions now is for the eternal hope that's out there. So the gospel, you put it around yourself.
0: If one thing, yeah, one thing that we know is if you embrace the gospel, you put yourself in conflict with the world. All right? Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you, it hates me. And it is not a, a pleasant thing to have the whole world around you believing differently having different perspective, and thinking you're crazy, thinking you just don't get it. And so, yeah, the if, if the gospel was only a temporal text. Paul said in First Corinthians 15, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most miserable.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? So that person itself ought to put the rest in any of this kingdom at all. Baloney, yeah.
2: This person itself kind of puts the K-box on all kinds of church movements.
0: Right. Right. Well, the reason this is—I'm thinking about this—I just finished the, the conclusion of my book yesterday, and uh, I was down here all day till 5:30, and it's done. And I think the conclusion is going to really be powerful. Keith's seen it, but we'd use this theme in the conclusion because um, the peace plan for the new reformation is going to uh, defeat five giants. Right, and the five giants are. Uh, Illiteracy, uh, bad leadership, hunger, hunger poverty, poverty spiritual, spiritual emptiness, interest. whatever that means. All right. <laughs> and and so what I did, what I did with my conclusion is I said this: these five giants, compared to the real giant, capitals, are midgets. Amen. And let me tell you what the real giant is. There is one huge giant that's facing the world that's far greater than all of these things put together. And that giant, the Goliath, that's facing the world is the fact that God's wrath is directed against sin. That it is building up, it's going to overflow, it is gaining interest, and the world is sliding down toward judgment. The wrath of God is about to be poured out on the entire world, and those five giants are nothing compared to that problem. You can feed everybody, educate everybody, make the world a nice, wonderful place for everybody, and God's wrath is still directed against the world. In in, uh, fact, in Romans it says that it uses this. In the Old Testament, it's about the cup of wrath which is overflowing. Romans it, it uses the term for. Uh, building up interest in the bank. That God's wrath is storing up interest. So the longer history goes on, the greater God's wrath becomes because the more wickedness and blasphemy He he, he suffers. Amen. Okay. And if we want to slay a giant, what we have to do is take the church and all of our missions and all of our resources and try to go through all the world to tell people how to escape God's wrath. Amen. And if you feed people, give them a good job, get them an education, get them better leadership and make their world a better place to live in, and they end up in hell, what value did you have?
2: Amen.
0: So what I'm saying is that the peace plan is worthless. Because it does nothing to help people escape God's wrath. It fails to even tell them there is it. God's wrath.
2: He exactly this. The temporal outlook on life and the eternal has been veiled entirely so you can work with the Muslims and you can work with everybody that's on this plan accomplish this peace plan, which means it's not God's peace plan.
0: No. Yeah. He, he says, I, I have a quote in, in this conclusion where he says, they don't have to be Christians. We're going to work with Muslims. And we've got clinic in a box, church in a box, leadership training in a box, and something else in a box. And we don't care who is a box. That's, by the way, that's a franchise. That means a franchise. Burger King is a hamburger restaurant in a box. So that's business terminology for something reproducible because it's a system that anybody can work. And you don't even need to be a Christian. Now, what kind of a reformation can be run by non Christians? Amen. Well, you know, that's. All right, back to our tips. The things that are senior temporal. Yeah, all of this is just. Uh, it's, we can't imagine it because it's all we know. We're locked in time and space. We're finite. We know years and days and months. And so I, under, I don't understand the eternal. I, the concept I understand, but I haven't experienced it. To me, I worry about trying to stay healthy, so I'm doing well however long the Lord gives me here, which is fine. Amen. But we haven't experienced these things. And what the Bible's telling us is that when we do... Then when we see Jesus for who He really is, and when eternity, when all things are made revealed, and all things are clear, and we look back at this, we will realize how foolish we were to worry about the things that we worry about. Amen. Right, And that our priorities were not anywhere close to what they should have been. And I believe that's probably true for me right now. I know it's true. But, but these Scriptures are a mitigating influence that would take our focus and put it where it, it should be and helping us to try to get this understanding into our hearts and minds. And that's why the Bible verses are here, to help us. To help us find comfort, to help us find hope, to help us have a perspective that would be God's perspective that would keep us properly motivated as far as what the important job is. And I honestly think there's absolutely nothing more important than preaching the gospel to every creature. Amen. The the, the gospel would go to every single person on the face of the earth in their language, in an understandable way, so they would know what God's terms are about how they can come to Jesus. And once that's done, then God will be glorified in eternity because no one can say, well, nobody told me. Let's go on. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Oh, I'm in 2 Corinthians 5.1. 2 Corinthians, just continuing on from 4.18. Sorry, I didn't make that very clear, did I? I? I'm just reading what Paul said. That's confirming what we're, we're learning in Hebrews 11.14. So, if this earthly tent is torn down, there's an eternal one. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked... For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. The Spirit as a pledge. Um, again, that's another thing I wrote about yesterday. The, the, the a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? What 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 would be a great mighty work of the Spirit of God, a true revival? And I would say, when the Word of God is clearly, forthrightly, and unashamedly proclaimed to a heart's and minds, Amen. that that is what God uses. And there's nothing more powerful. All these things we might think are powerful are simply signs, if they're even valid at all. If God does a sign. Like he heals somebody, yes. In my life, it was when the light turned on. It was just... right. That's what it said. Yep, <laughs> the, light. the light. Yeah, that, you know who turns on the light? The Holy, the Holy Spirit, exactly. Now, if some, let's say somebody is healed, is that the most powerful work of the Spirit? Well, it's a sign that points to something greater than itself. A healing is a sign if it's from God that points to messianic salvation and the validity of the gospel and the truth of the Word of God. So the sign points to the greater. The lesser points to the greater. The greater is the Word of God itself inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so that is what would come to the fore if we want a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. So I would say people say we want a revival. I said preach the Word. Amen. Preach the Word. And let God do what He's going to do. But the Holy Spirit is truly speaking through the Word. And that's powerful. Sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder the thoughts and intends of the heart. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, I had fun with that one yesterday. I said this other thing is the little rubber play knife.
2: <laughs>
0: and they got a little rubber play knife and they're going out into battle to attack the giants. And they left home the sword of the Spirit. Oh, wow. Something to think about it says here, so we have the Holy Spirit, verse six, therefore always being of good courage and knowing that while we 're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. there's that fatherland idea we 're absent from our homeland. we long for our homeland we're we 're in a foreign uh, places, place as strangers and pilgrims where we don't really fit in, and if we really do fit in, then somehow we haven't got got it right, <laughs> okay. We're a peculiar people, it says in, in, in Peter. Um, and it says here that oh, so we long for our home. And uh, therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So, uh, wow, Lord, help us to be pleasing to You while we long for our true homeland. Amen. So, back to Hebrews 11, 14. After that little interlude... Uh, Dean, could you look up Hebrews thirteen fourteen? We have no continuing si- city, but we seek one to come. So that's eschatological hope. So this, um, this isn't just about dying, by the way. It's, um, I was looking at William Lane, who has a, a very excellent commentary on Hebrews. Um, the city of God that they're looking for isn't just dying, but it's what God's going to do at the end of the age when He gathers all the redeemed together. To get, uh, together. And the heavenly city, the the New Jerusalem, the the, all of that is included in this. So we're looking for even the people who've already died have gone with to be with the Lord, though they see clearly now, are still looking forward to this city, because it hasn't yet appeared. It doesn't happen until God closes out history. Okay? All right? So that keep that in mind that this is eschatological city that will be appearing in the future. Uh, Let's see, alright, Hebrews 11.15 And indeed, had they been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Meaning, if they kept their minds on uh, the here and now, literally, let's just say, what if Abraham, Abraham is a, Key example that we studied here in Hebrews. What if Abraham spent all of his time thinking about Ur of the Chaldees while he's in Canaan? What would have happened? He would have had an opportunity to go back. But do you notice what they did? They made sure they got wives from there, but they, they wanted them to come back. To not go back and stay. And so when he sent off Eliezer, we assume it's Eliezer, he's not named in um, Genesis 24. But when Abraham sent Eliezer back to the homeland, he wanted him to find a wife for Isaac, but he had to come back with it, right? Rather than sending Isaac to stay there, he wanted to make sure they didn't have opportunity to go back. Now, what is the application to us? If we if we long for this world too much, we'll be tempted to return
2: the parable of the sower because that the seed falls on ground with the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of the world but has no fruit is the same concept because I'm drawn to these other my lusts for what I left I should have left drown me back and the, the seed is under the
0: right so we are choked by the cares of the world uh, thinking too much about only earthly things or maybe even things that could Have been good in and of themselves um, once we've left and we're here serving the Lord, we want to long for the heavenly city. And in some ways, it's almost saying your heart is either longing for heaven or longing to go back. That's
1: right.
0: You know, it's uh, I have a couple cross references, and I'm not sure uh, exactly which ones uh, they are. I once from Genesis 24, it may have been that's what I just alluded to. Uh, Denise, could you look up Genesis twenty-six to eight, and then Keith, Genesis thirty-two nine to 11, to eleven. Then I got I got something else I want to talk about out of out of uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis twenty-four
2: six to eight. But Abraham said to him, Beware not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall find a wife for my son. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back
0: there. Right. Notice how Abraham was adamant. Don't take my son back there. Abraham's heart, even though he didn't own any land, even though he was a stranger, he was believing the promise of God. That this land would go to his descendants. And uh, that was God's plan. So Abraham didn't go back. Yes.
1: Years ago when people gave their testimonies and services, the ones that, that glorified their old life, that I was into this business and that God saved me and then said, many of those people have
2: disappeared. they are not seen
0: anything. Yeah, that would be sort of like the parable of the sower and the seed. Yeah, we used to call them the skyrocket Christian. <laughs> Go up in a blaze of glory and pristle back to earth. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I say this quite frequently, but every every time you turn around as you read through Scripture, it just ties itself
0: together so neatly. It's, it's just amazing. Yes, um, that is great evidence for the inspiration, divine inspiration of Scripture. It's just studying the book of Revelation should show people that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. The way Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New. And the way it's intertwined, the way history wraps up. This whole, for example, the theme Babel. It starts in Genesis with Babel. Nimrod, battle, let us build a city. You know, let us reach into heaven. It's typical of the religion of man. And you can summarize all the world religions in Babel. And you get, and you trace it all the way through. You have the people taken captive to Babylon. You have the Babylonians destroying the temple. And then you trace it through and you end up with Babylon in Revelation. And what's Babylon in Revelation but the religion of man in rebellion against God? So it's just, just one thing that's like that. There's all these other themes that go all the way through the Bible and this is certainly one of them. So, if you think of where you came from, you're likely to go back. Uh, what was Genesis 32, 9 through 11?
2: Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servants for. With my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver from me I pray from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, and he will that he will come and attack me and the mothers of the children. For you have said, I will truly prosper you and make your descendants of the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered.
0: So again, a reiteration of God's promise, which was helping them keep their focus back where God wanted them to be. Something else I sort of illustrate illustrative of this would be Lot's wife. Didn't Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Remember Lot's wife? Well, why would we... What's what's the significance of Lot's wife? <laughs> you know, she was Sodom was so bad. I mean, if you think about it, how bad was Sodom? It was so perverted. Okay? And even after the angels struck these men blind, they kept groping for the door. And so imagine, it says uh, Lot's righteous soul was vexed day by day as he beheld the unprincipled or essential conduct of unprincipled men, in Second Peter two. So lots of wife had to go, had to go through that too. It was a horrible place, but yet there was something familiar about it. All right, and so that's that's the lesson to Once you put your hand to the plow, and you're going to serve the Lord, and you're going to be a disciple, don't look back like you you miss something. Amen. Uh, Brad, did you have something or not? Okay.
1: Well, the new religion is a backwards future. All you ever hear about is uh, retirement, golf, fishing, hunting. What they're going to do? They're not there yet. Even the 40 year olds. So, but they, that's all they can talk about. That's the new religion. But what after that? All you hear is, "Oh, if I could retire like you, that's forty years old, I'd do this. I could golf. I can fish. I can hunt." It's all the longing for this world and the retirement. But what after that? I says to guy, say, "He well, it'll be worm food.'" I said, that's right, where the world dies, not, you'll be well. <laughs> you know, you guys, all I ever hear is retirement, 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 the newspapers. There is no retirement in serving God. When you're a fisherman for God, that's the point. Not a fisherman for the world. If you golf for God, fine. Hunt for God, whatever it is, as a, as a glass of water under the Lord. But the new religion is this new retirement, and they got no, they can't address anything after that. Well, first of all, if you get to retirement, most people I know, they're sick, they got heart trouble, they got, I'm praying for half of them that aren't even there yet. So I don't want And they say, you're not going to have any retirement. You're not going to have a life. I said I drop dead right now. I have the best retirement this world's ever known. Because I'll be with Jesus. And I tell you, I won't have heart trouble. And I'll, I'll be able to do anything better with Jesus than I ever did on this earth. <laughs>
0: All right. That's the idea. <laughs> Norma? Don't, don't waste your life. Um, so this is a theme. Uh, William Lane says this: Their unsettled existence in Canaan offered them abundant opportunity for returning. If they had not regulated their lives in accordance with faith, the experience of alienation in the promised land would have provided an incentive for turning back. Th- that, that they showed no inclination to do so is indicative of, of an orientation of faith toward the promise and exactly that's exactly it um the the place they came from was a very good place it was they wouldn't be alienated there. they had everything they needed and but they believed God amen all right and so you people that are converted, their' old friends want them to come back they'll say, "Come on, come to the party, come on back to the bar we'll buy a, buy you a around, and come on we, we miss you." Your old friends, because they don't want to believe that God actually had changed somebody. Okay, they don't. They, they don't uh, um, did you have you noticed that Dan that you know does change you, but that some people not want to believe that's possible.
1: They tell me I'm a worse sinner than them and I say that's exactly right. i got 10,000 pounds of sin and you got one ounce, but I'll ask for mercy and be saved and you will drown in that one ounce and go to hell. That's
0: the
2: difference. <laughs> well, Dan, Dan I, I,
0: I was the one that started that. No, I—I'll th- th- tell you honestly why I brought that up. I was visiting Carolyn, who went home, by the way. It's a miracle, Carolyn Emery, yeah, and her brother was your old friend. And—and yes. and, uh, she was saying her brother just won't believe you've changed. No. And uh.
1: Well, he's the one that yelled at me one day. I was out in the bottom. I was divorced, and I got—I go everywhere, and uh, cause you get condemned. He said, "You still full of that crap, religion?" And I says, what are you talking about, Lovejoy? He says, you know what? I remember your mother and dad, and down on the river, there's Tudell, where they go fishing, and it was high water. And they drowned trying to save Tony Lynn and Wayne Fendrick. And I said, they had their faith in Jesus, and you're gonna tell me that's crap religion? I'll tell you what, that's, that's, that's pure and undefiled, it's grace, it's the, they gave their lives. Born Christian, your mother and dad were Christians, and you mocked that, and he shut up. <laughs> okay. crap religion, huh? Well, I say it in <laughs> yeah, okay.
2: Keith. You know, I think there's another concept. That <coughs> one that maybe six weeks. That I was not a bar hopper kind of guy. When, but I believed at one time God wanted to make me rich, that it was God's plan that I, I uh, prospered here and now in the temporal world. I great and, afraid, and it, I did, frankly. And as God's God became more true, that faded. But as you come into uh, pressures or temptation relative to money or, or temporal issues now, there's a temptation to say, well, maybe that was true. Maybe that was true. Maybe I'm not, this is happening, I'm not praying, or I've left a faith that was true, and now I have these afflictions. So it, there's always a uh, the temptation to go back to religious Error. Yeah, uh, that, that, that right. that's packaged in a way where you had the answers before. It's my leeks and my onions. <laughs> not necessarily getting drunk, but my leeks and my onions are finding comfort in something that was phony.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Keith Green, eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Remember that song? <laughs> yeah, go out. So you want to go back to Egypt? That was that was quite a song. My kids used to listen to that when we were in a truck going out ice fishing when they were little. So if they'd been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have an opportunity to return. And so that that in and of itself is why we need to preach the whole counsel of God and why we need to know about eternity. And we need to preach about heaven and hell. And we need to have our hearts and minds focused on God's promises. Amen. Because we're all just as tempted to go back. Amen because this world is has a lot that looks pretty good but may the lord get our eyes off of it and onto the to him and his promises now it says in verse 16 Hebrews 11:16 but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared a city for them beautiful passage notice the Verse 15 says thinking of, and verse 16 says desire. What that's talking about is one's attitude. <laughs> what's, what's inside of us that motivates us? Where we're focusing, what we're thinking about. Um, and I don't see any way we'll have this desire or this sort of thinking unless we're being influenced by the Holy Spirit the down the pledge of the Spirit, and that influence of the spirit comes through the means of the scriptures. Amen. and God does use other things like music or whatever, yes, Brad. right. If everything's going too good and we're not caring much about the Lord, um, a little round of affliction will cure that. <laughs> uh, my dad when he was uh, slowly dying of cancer and I was toward the end, I was going down just about every week and he was in such horrible misery. Uh, the last week he couldn't talk anymore. He could, I know he could hear me, but he, he couldn't respond. But the week before that, um with all the morphine and all the stuff they were doing, he says, it sure is hard to get out of this world.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, funny, I, mean, well, I, what, it, what, it showed that he had a pretty good attitude about, good attitude. yeah, he had a good attitude. And, man, it's hard, it's hard to, Hard to get, hard to get out of this world, but uh, he finally made it. So we desire a better country, that is a heavenly one, and God has prepared a city. Now the city, I believe, is a reference probably to the New Jerusalem. Some cross references. Um, all right, I'm going to need help with names. I'm sorry, uh, by Keith there. Susie and Jerry. Susie and Jerry, thank you, Susie. Genesis seventeen seven and 8, and Jerry, Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. And do you want to read one? Um, I'm going, ahead. Uh, Larry? Okay. Jeremiah 31, 1. Scott, Luke 12, 32. Diane, Philippians 3, 20. Yes, yeah, Genesis seventeen seven and 8. And I
1: will establish my covenant between... And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession.
0: Yes, so there's promise. The covenant promise not only was for the land, but for a relationship. Being God, being near God. Okay, and then Isaiah 41, 8 through 10.
1: Uh, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, I will uphold
2: thee with the right hand of my righteousness.
0: Wow, great promise here. Fear not, because I am your God. Don't we need that? Amen. Amen.
1: He also said he was his friend. I think that's so good.
0: Yeah. And Jesus didn't Jesus say something about friends? Yes, he did. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-one, one. That
1: time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and will be my.
0: That's interesting. Um, that's about this phrase. He's not ashamed to be called their God. Now, let's just unpack that idea a little bit this people that God says He was not ashamed to be their God, they were kind of messed up, weren't they? Didn't they have troubles? Didn't they fall into sin? And we certainly could very well think, um, I think God's probably ashamed of me. I know I am sometimes. Um, But He's not ashamed to be their God. Why? On what basis? Faith. They believed Him. He was their people. And they believed Him. And because they believed in Him, He's not ashamed to be their God. And if we're in Christ, we're a new creature. Amen. And if we're in Christ and we're trusting the finished work of Jesus Christ, God's not ashamed to be our God. Amen. And that's a very good illustration, Dan. We may have 10,000 pounds of sin, but God washed it all away. If you've one ounce of sin and you don't know God, it'll destroy you. Isn't that something? We'd like to compare ourselves with somebody else, but that's not how the Lord looks at it. Okay, and then um, did you do Jeremiah yet? Oh, Luke 12. That's it, Luke 12. Larry, you did Jeremiah, right? Okay, Luke twelve thirty two. That is really interesting. Don't be afraid, little flock. Why would Jesus call his people a little flock
2: <laughs>
0: because compared to the masses of those that are thinking that christ you know or Christianity's foolishness, it is a little flock. It's a narrow gate, and it's a narrow path amen and so the little flock might get the idea that uh, how are we going to establish the kingdom? Well, what Jesus says is, "Don't be afraid, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. We're not going to establish it. God's going to give it."
1: Amen. Gift. Amen.
0: Yeah. Amen. So that. Yeah, right there. That, that's exactly a good repudiation of dominion theology. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And there's so many versions of that out there. Uh Dominion theology, post-millennialism is another term for it. The idea is that by the actions of the church in history, we're going to establish the kingdom before Christ returns. That's that kingdom now or uh, that sort of thinking. And this verse is a good re- repudiation of it. This, no, it's just a little flock without a whole lot of power, but God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. You
1: serve preachers. You see them on TV. I mean, they're trying to reform America. You think the way they do it, we're going to evangelize the, the nation
0: and,
1: and that's what's going to turn it around. And I ain't going to name names. when you hear it. I
2: mean, is, that, is that what they believe?
0: Yeah, and some of them are more forthright about saying that and others just sort of imply it. But there's a group called Christian Reconstructionists who will forthrightly say we're going to make all the nations Christian by forcing them to obey the Old Testament law. Yeah, yeah but we're not going to name any names. <laughs> we were, somebody may have said that lately. Uh, I can't be. Well, a lot of the reason for the massive... Uh, uh, the justification for needing massive amounts of money is the fact that we're going to try to build the kingdom. We're going to, we're going to create some sort of kingdom now, and so it takes a lot of money to build a kingdom. Well, there there was a movement in the 80s, and it hasn't gone away. It just changes. It morphs, as they say. There was a guy named Earl Polk down in, I think, Atlanta. And he, he wrote a book. I think I got it in my heresy library, and it was called... Uh, Held in the heavens until. Held in the heavens until. And the thesis of the book was that Jesus cannot come back until the church takes dominion over the world. And that's just another version of this post-millennial idea that we're going to be able to conquer here in history. Now, what we're talking about in Hebrews here is total opposite of that. Here are people who are strangers and exiles and sojourners. Not people who are going to conquer the world for Jesus, but people who are strangers and exiles who are looking for a heavenly city, a little flock who look for the kingdom that is going to be granted when the Lord returns to those who love him, not established by action in history. Okay that was a good verse How about here's, a, here's one explicitly talks about us being I think citizens of heaven Philippians three twenty.
1: For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord
2: Jesus
0: Christ. Um, Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just take take that verse, just that one verse. Let's go back to Paul's thesis. Held in the heavens until. If you really believed that Jesus could come back until after you conquered the world, then rather than eagerly awaiting a Savior, we'd be out trying to conquer the world because He's held in the heavens until He can't come back anyhow. Yeah, we're, him yeah, we're keeping Jesus from coming back because we didn't take over the world yet. What happens when Christians get, take over the world? Well, we haven't, well, sort of. What happens when a Christians take over a country? Them, you hear, yeah, have you ever read the history of some of these wars in England? Did you know that Bloody Mary was a literal person, not just a drink? Yes, Bloody Mary. Amen. All right. And what what did Bloody Mary do? Who's the historian? Yeah, she killed everybody that disagreed. Anybody that wouldn't submit to the, her religious ideas murdered them. Um, that's what happens when the Christians take over. Well now, I don't know that these people were really Christian. But do you see the point? Is that history doesn't bode well for having power. Uh, Charlemagne forced conquered the Saxons and forced them all at the point of the sword to convert to Christianity. Uh, Louis the Fourteenth demanded that everybody become Catholic, and anybody unwilling to was 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 killed or driven out of France. My ancestors were the ones driven out of France. They were how do you pronounce Huguenot? Huguenot. That's what my ancestors were. And in 1685, they were driven to Holland for, because they didn't want to become Catholic. They were um, Protestant. Um, actually, they were uh, Calvinists is what they were. Yes.
1: When God told them to do it, to conquer the promised land, when told them directly to do it, mankind to do it, he didn't do it. So so much for mankind doing what he's supposed
0: to do. Oh, you mean yeah, the people? Covenant, yeah, they
2: did yeah, everything they were supposed to
0: do. Yeah, they they didn't carry it out perfectly. So <laughs> yeah, did, yeah,
2: yeah. You look even more recently. The churches did the same thing in England, and then they moved to the states and, and Salem. They killed the people in Boston. They killed the people who didn't agree with them.
0: Yeah, it's not a pretty history if you do read it. Uh, I was reading a book, the, the history of America, recently. And um, it's pretty embarrassing, frankly, yeah. what some, some of the stuff that was done. Yes, Brad?
1: You can't really serve God unless you want to. I mean, you know, you can't force people, that God gave man, you know, I guess a limited free will. I mean, you know, that's the same thing the Muslims are trying to do. They'll convert you or kill you. Then. I mean, not everybody wants to be
2: Muslim.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Robert, yeah, man, yeah. Man. yeah the, well, you can't change the heart with a sword. I mean, you can force somebody to be baptized, but you can't change their heart. Only God can do that. Exactly. So, you changing their
1: heart and relative to all this discussion, Queen Isabella, uh, Isabella Spain and Ferdinand, they were converting, they wanted everybody to convert to Catholicism and there was a huge Jewish population in Spain. And if they didn't convert, they would take away the property and kill them whatever, torture them. But the ones that there were there's, there were these Jewish people that said, "Okay, we will convert." But at the time, because of the because of the, uh, the new world uh, that uh, Spain was trying to build here in America after discovering you know, discovering America and so on, um, a lot of the Jewish people came here as as supposed converts. But they came here and says, "Hey, out in the middle of nowhere, we'll practice our religion secretly." See, they couldn't change it, but they could say that they were Catholics, but they were not. Up and down, in the, in
2: the 60s, a lot of the Jewish people started to come out of the closets, literally. Think about the same same thing about setting up a theocracy for the Kingdom of God. And that's what Cromwell did. They killed the King of England, who was legitimate King of England, who was based on his genetics, he was the guy, and they set up the. Uh, Puritan reformed most of the government and went around killing everybody else
0: that wouldn't agree with them. Yeah, you know, there was a hundred years after the Reformation, there was the Hundred Year War. And if you study that period of history, it was awful. You you think things are bad. No, we've got a wonderful... compared to we lived during the Hundred Year War. And the killing went on for one hundred years And what it was all about was deciding country by country in Europe which one was going to be Lutheran, which one was going to be Catholic. Um, And it really wasn't until, for all problems the Puritans had, for at least from what Dr. Travis taught when I was my history teacher at seminary, it was finally a Puritan who came up with the idea, first wrote an essay um, proposing... Uh, a separation of church and state, or not, or in the sense of not having a state religion. And it almost was out of desperation because as long as you keep having a state religion, you keep having all these wars to decide what it's going to be. Um, and you can conquer, uh, a country and declare that, you know, that, for instance, all the Scandinavian countries ended up being Lutheran by law. And they still are. And if you live in some of these countries, they tax you, and the taxes go to take care of the church because it's a state church. And the churches are sitting there empty. The pastors gets the salary, and they usually give them a job like being a censor, because There's nothing to do. People don't actually go to the church. But everybody's taxed to support the Lutheran church. That's still left over from the Hundred Year War idea. It doesn't really spread Christianity. That's my point. Gospel preaching does, not the sword. Yes. think
2: that a fanatic of the sword, whether they're Hindu, Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, and that results in the same, that people die. We weren't called to have the sword; we were called to have the sword of the Spirit, which is the God of the Lord.
0: Yeah. Right. There's a much more powerful sword that actually divides us under the heart, and that's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and that's the one we should go all with.
1: Amen.
0: Is way more powerful. And uh, may we use that, uh, preach the gospel, to get out that sword of the Spirit. And that's how the Lord has established the kingdom. He does so one citizen at a time. Every time somebody converts, is converted by God's grace, a citizen is added to heaven. And that's how the kingdom grows. So let's keep that straight and long for heaven as we close. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.